This week, it's my pleasure to welcome onto the No First podcast a couple of friends who just announced their engagement. Seattle native Stacy Rosich and Milwaukee native Sam Macon now reside in Los Angeles, California with their two cats. Stacy is an artist, illustrator, and as she says, accidental muralist. And Sam is a writer and director of various motion picture projects across a spectrum of styles, profitability, and running time. Hilarious. <laughs> Sam, Stacy, it's so great to talk to you today. Thank you for coming on my program. Oh, thank you for having us, Max. It's our pleasure. Absolutely. So where are you guys today? We are in... Glendale, California, which is, we just say Los Angeles because it sounds cooler, but <laughs> the real heads know that Glendale's the new LA. Yeah, where it's at. We're talking into Stacy's uh, computer in her studio, slash, uh, what would be a guest bedroom if we didn't both work from home? Yeah, slash Sam's <laughs> closet. <laughs> and are you guys typically working from home? Yes. We've both been working from home for a couple years now. Me, I think about two years I've been working at home. Yeah, our jobs both require on-site activities from time to time, obviously, but when I'm not on set or in like intense pre-production in which we're in an office situation, I'm mostly like toiling away in my basement work hole trying to or come up with the next big idea. But that's like the working from home part of my job. I probably should have prepped you with this, but the idea is to get an, an, an understanding of what the two of you do to fuel one another in your creative lives. Yeah. I think for Sam's work, I know we both bounce ideas off each other, but I think on like the technical side, I think I've, I've stepped in, especially during this pandemic time to really be just like a built-in assistant and production designer art art department slash cat wrangler pizza pizza cutter (laughs) so that's actually pretty handy is that when sam's gotten some commercial jobs that we've shot at home because can't have a you know a whole crew on set right now is that i don't think i'm like the best assistant but i think i can fill in and i can hopefully give him what he needs to be uh, a proficient director She's very helpful. (laughs) Um, He looks nervous right now. (laughs) No, I'm thinking about it. I think there's probably some great anecdotal information. Let's take it back a minute. The reason we met. Oh, oh yeah, that whole thing. Was through a mutual friend, Faith Levine, who I co-directed Sign Painters with, a documentary feature I did on the, the art and personalities behind sign painting and hand lettering. She had a gallery in Milwaukee. I was living in Chicago at the time. And she did a show for a young emerging artist named Stacey Rosich. And I was immediately captivated by the work. And I was like, these are so rich in narrative. I want to make them move. I don't have the project. I don't know what it would be exactly, but I need to reach out to this woman and, and see if she'd be interested in collaborating, maybe on a music video, maybe a short, whether it was like animated or costume creations based on her work. I didn't even really have it figured out to that extent, but we, I reached out to her. She was like, I'm already doing a video for the Fleet Foxes by a director that I am a fan of, but was also like internally competitive with. And I was like, great, never mind then. But we proceeded to have a really great conversation and being not like a big phone talker, I hung up thinking like, huh, that was interesting. Yeah, I immediately Googled him and was like, he's so cute and dreamy. (laughs) 
So really our entire relationship began at least with the desire to collaborate like hyper specifically. Yeah. It's, and we've had opportunities to do that. But at this point, despite it maybe sounding cliche, the whole damn thing is essentially a collaboration at this point. And that doesn't even, like the most important version of that at this point isn't even when we're actually working on something together. For me, it's like the sanity that Stacy and like our life together post working hours provides me to be able to then go crawl inside my own head for a few hours until it's all chewed up and no good anymore. So it's this kind of like grand life collaboration that because we're both lifelong artists is like the more valuable part of collaboration as opposed to she draws something and I shoot it or I'm shooting something and she draws it or whatever. Yeah. Wow. That was beautifully said. I don't know. I don't even think I can, can top that. (laughs) Anecdotally, we've done a lot of cool stuff together and some, we just did a cat commercial mm-hmm. and Stacy was primarily cat wrangler for our, our firstborn son, Julius, the cat. <laughs> but we've also done like, we did a really ambitious music video with a whole bunch of friends yeah. here in LA for a band on Sub Pop called Goat in which we brought her work to life in very, very extravagant costuming. And that kind of stuff has been super fun. Yeah. That opportunity, which was in, I think, 2015, that it was really cool because Sub Pop approached me and said, this band Goat really likes your work, digs your aesthetic, would you want to do a music video for them? And I was like, absolutely. I have a director for you. He's sitting next to me on the couch. And I think he would be perfect for it because he'd already worked with Sub Pop several times for shooting music videos for the dumb girls. So he already had a built-in relationship with them. So it was like perfectly seamless. They were on board. And it was really great to have someone like Sam on my team because he not only understood my work and he pushes me when I can get a little nervous and be like, I don't, yeah, sure. That looks fine. I don't care. And he's, do you like it? I'm like, no. And he's then have him redo it, which is like what I need someone to do to champion me and my confidence and to actually say, if you're not happy with it, you need to actually say something about it, which was something I really appreciate, babe. Thank you. Hey, no problem. (laughs) So it was nice to work with him in, in a professional context because he really knows how to work with people and he knows how to, how to handle my work too. I can already hear the different strengths that you bring to the table. And this might be a good point in the conversation for Stacy, for you to describe your work a little bit. Sure. So I am a painter and an illustrator. I work in watercolor and I work in a little bit of like a surrealistic folkloric universe. I create a lot of my own characters that have anthropomorphic, a lot of masks, a lot of patterning a lot of like dynamic scenes, a lot of greenery. I like to create these little vignettes that really come to life. They've seen different iterations in different mediums. I primarily work in watercolor. I've done murals. I've done, again, like the music video I did with Sam where we brought everything to life. I've done stop motion. Talk to me about your recent collaboration with Ruka. That was a great collaboration. They're really fantastic people to work with. Very relaxed. And again, they just really were fans of my work. I'm so grateful to have that opportunity to have people like my work and to envision it in, in different ways. And so they took one of my pieces that I created a couple of years ago, which is just like a couple characters standing around in different pattern clothing. And they were like, we actually want to create all of these items of clothing. And that's just music to my ears. That's always what I wanted to do. I've always wanted to do textile design because I paint so much of it and to actually see it in real life is quite fantastic. 
So what they did was they just said, paint some patterns and then we'll do the rest. We'll do the heavy lifting. And that's pretty much all it was. I created the patterns, I gave them the files and then they gave me a whole line of clothing. <laughs> and Sam, is there a through line to your work? Is there a theme to your work? I don't know if there's a through line to my work. I approach filmmaking in like one of two ways. My interests are diverse. There is obviously a direction in which I gravitate towards, which probably is towards the darker side of things, but I'm also, I like to be a funny guy and work with like funny actors. There is not a genre that I am most interested in. The way I see filmmaking and approaching filmmaking is that like, A, it's a collaborative art. So you have to create an environment for people to bring like their best talents to the project. At the same time, there's also an element of dictatorship. So it's my job to decide like, this is the story that is going to be told. I have to determine the best way to tell that story, which for me means that if this material, whether it's a commercial or a short film or a music video, if for a music video, if this is supposed to be like psychedelic and aggressive and a freak out, there's no limit to how aggressive and psychedelic and freaky it should be. If it's supposed to be funny, it should be as funny as it should be. If it's a horror film, it should be like as like punishingly scary as it should be. So my interest is like hitting those marks regardless of the, the, the specificity of the content or genre. That's like my goal. And then the way I achieve that goal is by being as openly collaborative and helpfully specific as possible throughout that process. There's a benefit in a lot of, in a lot of pursuits to pick a lane and stay in it and be the one who excels at that, at that thing. You can't be like Jordan, he was pretty good at baseball, but he had to be a basketball player. You gotta pick one to be the best. And obviously I picked filmmaking as my number one passion, even though I like writing, I like taking pictures. I enjoyed dabbling in graphic design at a point, but it, there's only one thing that I've always loved and it's been filmmaking. Within filmmaking, you can then also pick a lane. You can be a guy who does car commercials. You can be a Judd Apatow who does comedies that are too long. Um, <laughs> you can do all of these things and you just hit that over and over again. My interests, I've come to terms with the fact that my interests are too broad because my interest is primarily people and what people, how people respond to situations. And those are sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes funny, sometimes sad. I'm interested by it all. So it's really a matter of letting a singular project or idea take hold in a way that just becomes all consuming. And it's okay, now I'm working on a film about cannibalism in the Dust Bowl. Or now I'm working on a film about a pair of friends trying to become whole people while uh, making a living directing regional television commercials in their Bodunk town. It's like whatever that material is, I have to go all in on that. And I don't have as much say as maybe it would be beneficial to me to have in what that thing is that jumps in my brain and starts driving. Can you tell he talks and explains things for a profession? <laughs> it's very good. That's why I wanted to have him on the show. <laughs> We're talking about collaboration. We're talking about how your networks have expanded. The two of you sitting in that room together, the reverberations that have occurred as a result of meeting one another. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you do that. I think I am similar to you, Max. I like to bring people together. I'm like a big believer in working with your friends. There's obviously the well-known <clears throat> potential pitfalls 
of doing so. I've been lucky enough to not have any like major blowups or friendships like laid waste to. <laughs> My main producer, Jonah Miller, is like a dude I went to high school with. And we have been co-conspirators ever since in one way or another. But in a, in a city like LA, where there's a lot of fucking people here doing a lot of stuff, and there's like a desire or an instinct to accumulate connections. But because of the sheer number of people in LA, and because of like how sprawled it is and how much is going on, like the people you really stick with and really gravitate towards happens naturally. And it's great when those people are collaborators, like Stacy did uh, get one of her big gallery shows here in LA was with our friend Desi, mm -hmm. who's like a social friend. Yeah. But great gallerist also. Mm -hmm. And the lines get blurred, but I think it only works if you don't force it. As a filmmaker trying to make independent film, you're like a predator. You're trying to use almost every person you potentially meet somewhere deep down in my mind. I meet someone, I'm like, oh, maybe they can help me mm -hmm. advance my almost impossible to achieve career. But, but if you let that be, that's just there. It's ambient. It's in the very deep background. The, the, the actual friendships or relationships always either rise to, you know, the forefront. Yeah. And if they don't, then those relationships don't stay maintained, at least yeah. not by us. Like we're not, we're very social, but neither of us are like networky enough to put a lot of energy and just like keep it in touch with somebody that maybe down the line might benefit us right. professionally. Yeah. I don't see, this is where I think sometimes I lack motivation is that I'm also like a very like solo person. I love to, I just work by myself and I don't like Sam's work is so collaborative and it's so amazing to me that it so speaks to like how good you are working with people because so many of the people that are in your inner circle, your work circle are like people you've known since high school, which to me is incredibly rare to have functioning, healthy relationships with people like 20 years later that you've known since you were 14 and you all work together beautifully. And I think that's so cool. Whereas I work by myself, that's how I prefer it. And I think I'll always do it that way. And I just am not, I'm ambitious in my own slow way, but when it comes to seeking people out, if they can get me this or get me that, I don't care to do that. I always think, you know what, I'll just be myself. And if they like me and they want to offer me something like a show or a collaboration with a clothing company, they'll offer it to me. <laughs> well, yeah. I go out and find it myself. And it's actually benefited me. <laughs> It's funny. You guys are both business owners. It's not funny. You guys are both business owners. There's components of it's tragic little, comedy. To that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As owners of your business, as owners of your work, as owners of your space, what does that do to you, both positive and negative? How does that affect your life? Sam, you were talking a minute ago about the hustle for other entrepreneurs that are out there, for other people that are out there like yourselves, what advice would you give to people that are scared to ask for the money, that are scared to ask for what you're worth? I'm wondering, Stacy, you were just talking a minute ago about how you go for it. How do you yeah. guys decide what to go for? Well, I think what your earlier question was really a great question about like entrepreneurs and like how do they ask for what they need? I think Sam can feel the question about that really tender question of asking for money because I don't actually have to do that, but I do have to ask for what I feel like I'm worth in terms of negotiating for projects. When I'm working with like larger corporations doing murals and stuff, I think I'm much more confident now in saying, 
I want this. And I have been really lucky where these clients will come back and say, okay. And I'm always like, damn, I should have asked for more. Because I was like dropping, dropping a bucket for them. And there have been other times when editorial jobs come my way. And those are notoriously low paying job because it's basically for the prestige of working for any sort of printed material. And those, sometimes those budgets are so painfully low and I'll say, just try and bump it up a little bit for me. And then they usually, they can, if they're able to, and if they're not, that's fine. But I feel much more comfortable just saying, this is what I want. And if they say, and I always say like, but I, you know, I really want to work with you and I'm flexible. And if, if we have to work on the numbers and that's fine. If it's like a really big job and they're not going to pay me enough, then I will say no. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to, when it comes to advice, my personal sort of like story or approach to, you know, some of the things that you're talking about is probably a little bit different than my advice. My advice to people in this realm is very simple. There's no danger in asking. You literally cannot hit if you don't swing. If you are an impure and unhospitable and gracious person, you may have great success, I think, early on due to flash or due to just some real genuine like ability or talents, some hype. But I, I think the longevity of that is uh, suspect and probably not going to happen because unless you're like a really high functioning genius, there, there's a real limit to how much people are going to give you if you're not a collaborative and genuine person. So you can ask, someone might say no, and that will be for multiple reasons. It probably will not have anything to do with you. It'll probably have to do with this person's position, these, this person's interests, their level of prestige. But I've had I've been totally ignored and I've had outrageous success reaching out to someone that seemed like way out on the outer limits of possibility. And they've responded and collaborated on a project. So it can never hurt to ask. I don't worry about it personally because I know that I'm as much as maybe I'm like quote unquote hustling or trying to like maintain connections or get buy-in on a given like project or idea. I'm not doing anything impure because I believe in my ideas. I believe in my humanity for the most part. And I'm basically asking someone to be interested in this thing also and come along with me on this journey and this project. It never feels as like selly as it can maybe sound on paper because I'm trying to like make things happen that I truly believe in. I'm not trying to like sell widgets for profit. I'm trying to like tell stories that I think are interesting that hopefully bring people joy and so all I'm ever really doing is asking someone else to be involved in that. Yeah. And ooh, can I actually add one more thing? It has taken me a long time to ask for what I want because being a woman in any sort of industry where you have to talk about money is very fraught. And I think it's well documented that women don't ever ask for how much they think they're worth. You know, when you're asking for like a starting salary, women always go like end up getting like 10 grand less than they could because they just don't ask for it. And I totally understand that because there is this whole like baked in fear of being called, oh, she's she's a bitch because she wants this. And like, who does she think she is? Which is a lot of society making us think that, but also just it's like really internalized. And it's taken me a long time to get over that. But once I just made the conscious effort to ask for what I wanted and then not couch it in yeah, how about, what about maybe I could want to know, I just wanted to ask for this, you know, it's like, I took out all of those 
those like fluffy words to kind of like soften this blow that I thought I was giving a client, the more straightforward it was, the easier it was to talk about it. And I just realized I was making it harder on myself and to just ask for what you want is the key. I'm not always great at it, but I've gotten a lot better at it. It is so hard. It is so hard. Even as a, as a man in a creative role, I struggle with it. We had a dinner time conversation with our two girls just this week about how, if you are of a different race or if you are a woman, you don't make the same amount of money and it has nothing to do with anything other than those two things. One of the one or both of those things. And our 10 year old was kind of like, what? And the 13 year old was not surprised at all. And I'm wondering what happens in those three years. Right. Both the girls are very, very smart and they're very aware. And especially, you know, I think when you're 13, you're more aware of, of the internet now in a way that we didn't grow up with. I grew up with a little bit, you know, she's probably so tapped into what's happening right now. And like, they're very smart girls and they're the future, honestly, like their generation is just so much more just forward thinking and outraged at inequities that we're just accept as totally fine. What I think the real battle is for the retention of those basic like pure ideas of right and wrong. It's like the concept of every child's an artist. How many of them continue to be? I don't believe in any concept of like inherent or baked in evilness. The majority of the callous, racist, and terrible behavior that like is dominating our society has been dominating our society, not even currently dominating our society, is so structurally taught at some point. That question of like, what happens between 10 and 13 is like a great question. And then what happens at, between 13 and 19? You can't just teach kids to share in kindergarten because right. I don't believe it at that. Because but when they're eight, they'll be like, oh, that's unfair. That's unjust. We stop that kind of teaching mm-hmm. at some point, And then we switch over to this like pure meritocracy, albeit not for everyone. <laughs> and and that's, that's, the part of, that's the part of meritocracy that gets kind of watered down is it when you start thinking about you didn't start off in a meritocracy i guess I'm, I'm just saying i'm really happy for you that you've got such great girls that you guys are raising such great girls that the fact that you guys are having these conversations at the dinner table about how intersectionality is real and it has it has such an important place in understanding how we're all going to be an equitable society in the future i that just Makes my heart sing. More equitable, more equitable. We hope so. Talking about teaching civics, we should also be teaching civility to a certain degree. We're heading into a time period where the pendulum is swinging in the other direction from where it's been for the last four years. After, After a time period where I'm just, I'm convinced that American society in particular is going to require a heavy dosage of centrist view, a just level-headedness, not even centrism. There's not a strong understanding of what politicians are supposed to be doing for us and that it is a transactional relationship. These people are not our heroes, though civility and intelligence should be rewarded, but it's, I'm going to, I'm going to get into a ramble here. So a rant is coming. (laughs) The conversations that need to be had can't even be had because everybody's just losing their minds having these same sort of like most volatile, most click-worthy, and most 
ratings grabbing conversation. There's that. Sure. There's that like media stretching the message to the very, to the opposite poles situation. Like, that's all, going on. all young women growing up, like your daughters are, are learning that there are these like inherent and very like obvious inequalities. It's like most people are having experiences like that steadily and slowly in the right direction. And that needs to happen. And it can't get drowned out by just everybody. By extremism on either side. Yeah. Yeah. That's ultimately what I was trying to say when I was talking about centrism. I think it's time that we jump into what's in your cookies this week. This is the part in the conversation where I ask you, what did you watch, listen to, shop for, read this week? What's in your internet history? What's in your cookies? And we'll start with the obvious question. What is your favorite cookie? Actually, so cookies are in my cookies. <laughs> uh, I was looking up the recipe for a white chocolate macadamia nut cookie to make. And I was looking them up. That is one of my favorite cookies. And so I feel like I have this unpopular opinion. I hate dark chocolate. I think it sucks. I realized the irony of not liking pure chocolate. I like fake chocolate because it's not even real. It's just a milk confection. But I really, I love white chocolate macadamia nut cookies. And I made them and they were delicious. And I don't, did you have any? Yeah. My favorite cookies are like, you know, pretty old school, like the chocolate chip cookies that Stacy makes. Mm -hmm. That's like, probably those are like my favorite. Stace House cookies. My, my, <laughs> my favorite store-bought joints are, I don't know if you all have heard of Oreos. And when the last time you've had one. I think you were, that would be more about uh, I used to have them all the time, but then they changed chefs and moved to Mexico. Oh. Uh -huh. um, I'll tell you what, they're still good. They're, st they're still amazing. Oreo has done such a good job with like shelf maintenance. <laughs> Look at a cookie shelf. There are like 40 varieties of Oreo. It's outrageous. Oh, I thought you just meant like shelf stability. I'm like, you're like, I have Oreos that are <laughs> Yes, it's like a Twinkie. You can pin it to your good. bulletin board and eat it 10 <laughs> years later. The, it's fascinating. There's an Oreo for almost every situation now. They, they might as well have a breakfast Oreo. The bar mitzvah Oreo, <laughs> the Christmas Oreo. Arbor Day Oreo was a stretch. Yeah. All plant-based. Aperol Spritz Oreo. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Collaboration with, with Campari for Negroni. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> but so back to white chocolate. So I didn't, I don't actually know how white chocolate is made. How is white chocolate made? I don't know. I'm sure there's probably a really good Mark Summers like unwrapped. Oh, sure. Ugh, I love that show. It is milk uh, though. There is milk in it. Yeah. It's made with, at least with whey. We know that. Yeah, okay. I'm sure. Sugar. I think it's probably just milk and sugar and like lard or something and like napalm, something just terrible for you, but it's just so good and I love it. And I, <laughs> it's so funny because I think we know quite a few foodie types around here that have really good taste. And it's so funny how often I get brought a bar of dark chocolate and I'm like, oh, no one knows me. It's a very nice- Bless your heart. <laughs> it, <laughs> is. Yeah. it is. But we and don't I, care for it. We don't care for it. And I usually toss it in our, our, we have a candy drawer. That's one of the best parts about being an adult. You can wear shoes on the bed and you can have uh, a candy drawer. Not that I wear my shoes on the bed. I would never do that. But if I wanted to, I can. But having a cookie drawer or a candy drawer is pretty fantastic. And you can- You'll find a couple dark chocolate bars in there. And I usually just save them and then just give them to someone who's a fan. <laughs> what else is in your cookies this week, you guys? 
we watch a lot of the same things because we uh, live together are, and are engaged. Mm-hmm. And well, we had both somehow not seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And have you seen it, Max? One have of my favorites, Mike Nichols first. It is. And man, did he do it. I can't, I'm a fan of his. I can't believe, I, I, like, I like the Burtons. I couldn't, <laughs> I like Waxler, the DP. I just couldn't believe that I hadn't seen Wexler. it. Wexler, not Wassler. No, I said Wexler. Yeah, but it's different. That's the director of photography. Okay. Haskell Wexler from Chicago. Yeah. Who was like really, really ahead of the curve in terms of that naturalism, the way they shot on location. But just the dialogue, the writing, the, the yep. performances are like so over the top. I have not seen a movie in a long time that just, I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. I loved it so much. It's so wild. It's so equally dark and funny mm-hmm. and exhausting and intriguing and enthralling they chew the scenery but in the best way possible when you're like this is like <laughs> capital a acting it's funny to talk to you and be like hey have you guys heard about this movie that came out like 70 years ago <laughs> but uh, dip back in if you haven't seen it in a while it's you you gotta be in the right headspace though because it is so much it's like wall-to-wall dialogue and there is so much emotional weight behind it that you you really gotta be mentally prepared, I think, for it. Yeah. Nichols jumping off the Nichols and May train, directing some things for first off Broadway, then for on Broadway, then taking this to Hollywood and putting it in front of, as you said, the Burtons. And they, what was their relationship like during this time period? I'm trying to remember, but like Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton seem to be at each other's throats basically ever since Cleopatra. Going purely off half-assed internet research, IMDb, it's, I think they were on an upswing at that point. They were being very social. I heard it was like hard to get them back from lunch sober by like, mm. by four o'clock. Which and is then, great because they play, they drink so heavily. An incredible amount of consumption in the film. Throughout this movie that I, I imagine that could only have helped. But the whole process of making the film sounded like equal parts fun, exciting, and a total disaster. They were shooting on location, which was rare. These massive megastars were very hard to handle. Mike Nichols is a first timer, albeit I guess had great authority over the actors and a really strong relationship with everyone. Inventive cinematography, like mountains of dialogue, long takes. I guess it was a tough shoot, but then it went into be it was nominated for every Oscar category or something crazy and won a bunch of them. Richard Burton was robbed though. Oh. He should have got it. <laughs> robbed. Anyway, so that was that. What else is in your cookies? Well, I'm wondering before we move on from that, I'm wondering if there are any parallels that we could make to today, to what's going on today. I'm That house was a hot box, right? Mm-hmm. And we're oh, all yeah. living under... It, it, a third wave, a fourth wave, a fifth wave of, there was never a wave. It's just been a steady incline of Mm COVID-19. And our city announced that new sanctions are being put in place and we're gonna have to quarantine again this coming week. I'm wondering if if this is the movie to watch right now (laughs) because (laughs) tensions running so high. I, I find myself needing to I, I, I miss traveling. And for most of my 30s, my employment experiences afforded me the rich opportunity to be out of the house more than I was in the house. Whether I was on the road or not, I was never home. And now I'm always home. And 
I'm going crazy. Yeah, <laughs> this might be a little claustrophobic for you because it's most of it is set in a house and there's a lot of tension and you can feel the walls closing in. I'm the freak that finds like uh, kind of passive light entertainment more frustrating and stressful <laughs> than like a real emotional grinder. Catharsis. I, you like catharsis. I like, I like the elevated experience. I like to see something truly terrible and be like, well, at least it's not that bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Empathy. Empathy well. runs thick. Yeah. 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 Compared that's, to George and Martha. Or that's where we diverge is that I, I do... If I'm feeling bad, the only thing I want to do is watch a funny, something funny. It's like funny. comedy has always been such a comfort in my family. And I just, when I'm not feeling great, the last thing I want to do is watch it, something about people screaming at each other or <laughs> that, that's just me. That's just where we were different. Sam is such a student of film and I'm just like always searching for the good times. Yeah. Also, one could say that it's good that you are in the same house together because there's an escapism, not only to your bend, Stacey, but also to your work. You yeah. escape into these nether realms, these right. otherworldly spaces, whereas Sam, you're exploring the depths of human character and yeah. emotion and understanding of the human condition. Right. And reality-based, I think. Yeah. The borders of reality, we like to mine that. Sure. Sometimes I'm writing a treatment for uh, a chainsaw commercial. It's not always playing well, the depths of humanity but as much as I would if, like it to be. You know, but I think that's like, that's what fills the well. We all need to buy a bratwurst, God damn it. Yeah, and I'm the man to present it to you on film. <laughs> like, what books have you guys read this week? Oh, I've been on a, a, a downswing of reading. I've got a couple books on my bedstand that... I haven't been able to get into Circe. It's a kind of like a Greek tragedy or Greek myth. But I did read the book, The Idiot by Ella Batuman. And that was one of the best books I've ever read. I think it was one of the funnier, smarter, stranger books I've ever read. It's about this young woman who just basically is writing about her. It's from first person, her experience of going to Harvard for the first year as a freshman, 18 year old. And it's like, dispatches from my funniest oddest friend and I just could not I was so sad when it, when it ended I just wanted it to go on forever it's a great book I read it last year I really enjoyed it I just finished this book death in her hands that is like the new book from Otessa Moshfig I don't know how to pronounce her last name actually I feel bad she also wrote my year, my year of rest and relaxation. relaxation I read that one and it was okay but before this, I had just finished this book, Outer Dark, by Cormac McCarthy. It's like his second book. And it was good. Extremely dark. It's like the story of incest. And then the brother leaves the baby in the woods and then abandons her, his 19-year-old, his recently having just given birth sister. And then they go on this like separate parallel quixotic odyssey through Appalachia during very hard times. Light fair. Typical light read Cormac McCarthy type stuff. It's a real beach read. But... I get the reason why it's notable is it's this is it's a very typical bro literature thing, I guess, to say, but it's the first author whom I've read all of his novels in my life. And and this is like a PSA for people who don't read a lot because I was one of them. I was a bad reader. I was bad at doing reading. I was bad at retention. I was a bad student. 
and I had very little enthusiasm for it. I had read books periodically throughout my life and I would enjoy them, but finding it as like a, as an escape during these strange and troubling times, quote unquote, that was not there for me. And in the past couple of years, it has come out of nowhere and it's really ratcheted up. And if I can do it, anybody can. Not to be preachy, but I just found it to be like, it's What like, changed? I don't know. More free time or you make time for it? I make time for it. It's usually a morning activity or, a, you know, airplanes were a big part of it because I would look at my phone for four hours straight on a flight and feel lobotomized, I totally trashed out, playing games or watching something stupid. And I was like, oh, I could just like use this uninterrupted time to read a book. And so that was like the desire to do that. There was a fair amount of like boredom and existential dread in the beginning of our LA days where I just wasn't working like I wanted to. And then it was being completely willing to stop reading a book after five pages. If it's not working, don't subject yourself to it. If you're not compelled to continue doing it, drop it. I spent so many probably years of my life like trying to read some book somebody told me to read or trying to read some book I thought broadly I would be interested in and I would just like read the same 20 pages every three or four months and I never was enjoying it throw it over yeah know, I, I agree that I because I've always been a reader but I go through big droughts where I don't read very often and I think it's because I've always been like oh, I have to finish this book it's not I don't really like it that much but I have to read it and that's why it'll take me eight months to read one book and then I just I'll probably read something else in the meantime but I'm like oh the Raymond Chandler book. Why, why did I never finish it? And I think when Sam, you were like, just read a book you enjoy. And then I would just sit down and read a book that I liked and I would read it in three days. And then I would feel juiced up and then I'd be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, reading is fun. I actually like reading. I'm going to read something I like. I'm not going to keep forcing myself to read this book that is boring the hell out of me. <laughs> Scathing take on Raymond Chandler, whom I've never read. Uh, the long goodbye. God, talk about the longest book. They would just not say goodbye. <laughs> no, it was good. The dialogue was excellent. I just was like, okay, I got it. Just end this book now. <laughs> yeah. And you could always watch an Elliot Gould movie and basically get the same experience, right? I was kind of thinking that. I'm like, I should probably just watch the movie, <laughs> all these books, and get exactly what I need out of them. If it doesn't grab you, same thing with movies. If you've gotten 15 minutes into this thing and it's already feeling tedious, yeah, it's going to be a tedious couple hours. Just save there, your money. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And I need it to be fiction. I have to, for books specifically, it's got to be like so escapist. It doesn't need to be fantasy. In fact, it needs to not be fantasy. <laughs> not a Lord of the Rings. Not going to happen. But it's got to be... <laughs> Un, unattached to reality for me to fall into it because that's like the main thing I want. I'm like in a, a avoidance mode right now hmm. since quarantine specifically. Like I'm really trying to shelter my mind space. Yeah, I agree. I'm a hard hardcore fiction nerd. Love it. Let's move on. Sam, you asked the question, how do you normally start something? So I'll ask you to answer that question. That's a great question. It's a great first question when I'm supposed to come up with the first question also. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's it good. I am one to jump into things with uh, minimal, not zero preparation, but minimal preparation. 
and varying degrees of expectation in terms of what the outcome will be. So I kind of like to just go for it, which is not to say that I'm like some guy just throwing caution to the wind all the time, but I think that like, I primarily learned by doing and by experiencing. I was never much of a student anyways. So to pour over just like hours of of instruction or preparation has never really been my bag. I just like to go for it and then learn as I go. Yeah, like throw it against the wall, whatever you got, and then something will stick. (laughs) That's why I prefer cooking to baking. Yeah, baking. Boo. You got to follow the rules. So, So Sam, would you ascribe to fail fast and break things as well? Not as a, I think it's fine for a person, as long as what you're breaking is not relationships and people around you. I do not think it's a great idea for our computer overlords that are driving the conversation in most of society at this point. I would like them to move slowly and cautiously and with great deliberance (laughs) and heavy government oversight. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah. Stacey, how do you start something? Uh, Again, I think because it's just about me and the only person I have to blame if I fail is myself. So I think I just throw whatever I can against the wall and much like the book or the movie that's not working out. If it doesn't, if it's not panning out, I just stop and I move on to something else. Well, and for you with your painting, it seems like inspiration comes very like, it's just like around. Mm -hmm. Like the things that will trigger something in your mind or get you going on a new painting. It's not like you're sitting over like, you're not pouring over like research material and image inspiration. Sometimes you dig into that stuff, but it's, you just seem to like, be like looking at the world and then mutating it and putting it in a painting. Yeah, I feel like I'm always like taking pictures in my head and then storing them away and subconsciously. And then I'll just, it'll come out some other time in another piece of work. And there is a lot, there is an element of just trial and error when I'm starting a new piece. Sometimes I'll draft it and then I'll just jump right in. And then the more I work on it, the more it develops, the more it blooms and blossoms. And that's just like the most incredible moment. I'm always chasing that dragon just to have that moment. And there are other times when I'm, I don't have any ideas and I'm just starting and I'm letting the chips fall as they may. And sometimes it works and then sometimes it doesn't, but most of the time it does work because I've just been honing my craft for, oh my God, like 15 years now. That's when I learned watercolor was like 15 years ago. And I've been drawing my whole life, so it all works together. What about you, Max? Oh, I'm a procrastinator. I'm a reformed procrastinator though. I've learned to just do it. I've learned that like, the worst thing you can do is procrastinate actually, that just, Turn, just get it done. Anyone who isn't punching a clock has to deal with procrastination. Even people who punch a clock have to deal with procrastination. And I think I found it to be helpful to give myself a little bit of grace with procrastination or not see procrastination as anything other than like living and doing other stuff, which is okay too. I I was actually just going to say the same thing. And I think we both I'm never going to get on Sam for if he's reading in the morning. I'm like, shouldn't you be working? I think we both work on our own schedules and it will get done and it will look good in some way, shape or form, but there is just space we all need to just do whatever we need to do. We need to putter, we need to run an errand. And then when we can really feel like we're in the right place, we can get to work. And it's interesting because at the end of a given day where I've like essentially whittled it away, 
and we're having a cocktail on the veranda, I might feel good about that day. There are other times where, you know, that whittling away or not having achieved something or not scratched something off the list is fills me with like existential cosmic dread. Right. There's really, it, it's actually not as connected as I would think it would be to like what I actually did. It's more about like, how did I feel about what I did? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes great sense. And I think that's important to have an appreciation and an understanding. Self-knowledge is like the most important knowledge. Self-awareness is so valuable. The yeah. older I get, the more I appreciate that I understand and know myself as well as I do and that I want to know myself and understand myself better, which is why I named this podcast what I named it, which is why I've done the work that I've done, especially in the last five years, especially, but but the last 10 years for sure. Just exploring the things that do, that get me going, that get me up in the morning, that keep me healthy and keep me sane. What do you appreciate the most in your friends? Thoughtfulness, a sense of humor, Flexibility, and uh, I think I said undying pledges of fealty. <laughs> I do like loyalty. appreciate it. It makes it sound like I'm a mafia. <laughs> yeah. I just want, I want seek a fence. I want, yeah, I want, I appreciate availability in friends <laughs> to uh, hang out when I feel like it. Flexibility and availability is always fun. I think that's how friendships, <laughs> I think, are made and maintained. It's just say, like a flexibility. Like just say, hey, you want to get together? You want to come over? Yeah, great, cool. Yeah, and I, I have a lot of old friendships that are very comfortable, but that's not what I like the most about them. What I like most about them and what I like most about Stacey and I is like, relatively long relationship is that there isn't there's not like a bunch of diminished excitement it's I don't feel like when I'm hanging out with a friend with like my very best friends from like high school and and beyond how can we still be enjoying having a drink right now or how can we still be enjoying like watching like a Packer game together or going to the movies together. Like after all these years, how has it not right. gotten old? And I just think that what you really want with friends and, and partners is like uh, a continuation and an evolution. <clears throat> I don't really want my friends to be like comfy, a comfy old pair of shoes. I want my friends to continuously be like the latest and greatest. Yeah. You want them to challenge you and you want them to be. And I think that Sam, you get that in spades from, especially from your, college and some of your high school friends, the way that I've seen the group interact, I'm incredibly envious. I've never had like a, a, a steady friendship. I, I moved back here in 2017. And one of the first people I reconnected with was my best friend from fifth and sixth grade. We changed schools in seventh grade and didn't go to the same school. And so we lost touch almost completely. We were a five minute bike ride from one another through those two years. And I never saw him again after sixth grade and we reconnected and then we worked together. Sam, back to your earlier comment. We worked together for the first six months that I was in town. And then I never saw him again. (laughs) It's just like, and then I, I worked with a, a guy that I went to college with after that. And we worked together for six months and we get together every once in a while, but I don't have, I, I don't have steady cadence with anybody. And that's, that's amazing to me. Stacey, okay. what's your, what was your like longest tenured relationship and how did, how have you maintained it? 
one of my oldest friendships, which are so funny because I always feel like whenever I say this, I make it sound like she's in her 80s. She's my <laughs> oldest friend, which she's not. She's the same age as me. But I've known Maddie Romancic for, gosh, tw- we met when we were nine. I'm Whoa. 33. We're still, I consider her one of my absolute best friends. We don't talk as much. It's like this kind of rarefied thing where you could not talk to someone for weeks, maybe even like months, really, and just pick up right where you left off and just still have this rapport with them that you don't have with anyone else. Like she is someone that I really credit with like turning me into the artist I am. Feels like my dad has huge influence on me, but then she especially was like such a nut. Like she is just, we were in fourth grade and she just knew who she was. I remember she'd come to school in a tie-dye shirt with striped leggings and I would be like, what are you wearing? (laughs) And she just was so cool and just, she was really good at drawing and I was good at drawing. And instead of becoming like arch nemeses of each other, we like literally joined forces to become one artist. We learned to draw like each other. And we were such, you know, dorks that we would draw our stuffed animals. We had a whole series based on our stuffed animals and we drew so much together. Like she actually, one of the, when Sam and I were back in Seattle for Christmas this last year, we went over to her mom's house to say hi to her. And she brought out all of these folders of binders of our artwork from age nine on. And it was just, we were just crying, laughing, looking at them. It was very it was embarrassing to show Sam like the depths of my nerdiness. You but. should have seen these kind of sexy anime <laughs> rabbits in their Gilius crop top. Oh really but you know it. what? We all had to start somewhere. <laughs> but I am like secretly happy that she's hid them away in her mother's house so no one can find them. But yeah, I've just known her forever and she yeah. lives in Seattle still and I just love her so much. We we get in, she is someone I'm so comfortable with that I feel comfortable arguing with her like I do like my sister or my mom, which I don't really do that with my other good friends. Like I try and be diplomatic and mature, but with her, I'm like, I don't care. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a a brat to you because I can't. <laughs> it's a true friendship. It's a true friendship. And I just I adore her. Yeah. Have you guys thought about this? The fact that like the things that you were doing when you were single digits are the things that you still do now. Yes. Oh my God. I've thought about that. I just, I think I knew I loved something and I knew I was good at it. And then I just never really bothered to be good at anything else. <laughs> she's, good Sam, at other, she's good at other stuff. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's true at all, but it is clearly, you have a very clear vision, Stacy, and you have a very clear drive and, and perspective on your mediums or media. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think when you just spend so much time on something, I don't even know if we necessarily believe that 10,000 hour rule. I think it helps. But I think if you have just a little bit of talent already, it's it's going to work out. I think if you just put the time into it, you've you know, got to have a little bit of an inclination there to begin with. Yeah. Sam? Yeah, I've wanted to do... I've wanted to like make films or be a director since I was four or five years old in some, you know, manner of speaking. Before that much of my personality was developed, that became a very guiding principle mm-hmm. in, in it. And so it is completely inextricable. I don't even know how to, I think I can live in the moment and be a part of life, but there is a, and maybe specifically because film is oftentimes the depiction of reality and 
we live in such a mediated world that even a, a non-student or pursuant of film probably still sometimes sees things in a with a movie gloss over it. But like I had that, it's almost omnipresent. There is a constant bit of remove almost all the time. It's very hard for me to like truly experience something and not find myself occasionally outside of it thinking, oh, this is, this is how this story would be told visually, like in a movie, or this is what the music would be like. And it's not to say that I'm like hyper-fictionalizing my life or anything, but I'm like, I am think I am seeing things. I'm looking out my car window and I'm like seeing shots. I am not just like looking out the car window ever, huh. basically. It's weird. It doesn't feel weird to me because I don't remember ever not approaching things that way, but it's a thing. Yeah, it's like being like maniacally dedicated to what you love and what you do. It's just, it becomes so, it's like in your DNA now. Yeah, it's, an, it's, an, it's a new limb. It's just part of you. Mm-hmm. My first four art projects in fifth grade all relate to what I do now. It was a ceramic bust of Paul Newman. <laughs> you <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> My, I could draw a picture perfect Alfred E. Newman in fifth grade. Wow. Very nice, very nice. And as a result of that, my friends started asking me to parody them. Oh my God, as, you caricatures? Yes, as though they were Alfred E. Newman. So it was like their cover of Mad Magazine. And then I could alter their favorite sports team's logo oh. to be like their name. And I made them into bookmarks. And then, oh, a teacher asked us to prepare like, print advertisements and we had to like we combined English and art for a little while and I wrote an ad campaign for Shaquille O'Neal when he was still in college for his first shoe wow Shaq attack (laughs) oh and then the last thing that, that that I remember is that I designed a line of swimwear and it was called Maximum Swimwear and then what was my first job out of college I worked at Speedo I get it that's pretty clever Wow. I just, it's fascinating that like the things that we pack into our lives and that if, if, if certain people, not everybody, obviously, but like certain people that are driven and care and find meaning early, it never leaves. Yeah. When it's provided, I find, I have a profound sense of continuity for the most part when I think of like my life. Yeah. I don't see it as like big movements or separated like ventures I see it as like an ongoing, a a very squiggly, albeit linear path. It's not like there aren't a lot of like weird tangents and there aren't a lot of moments or things that I did that feel super separate and other. There were a couple out of the box moments. Like I was never made to work 40 hours a week doing landscaping, but I did that for a summer and that seemed pretty specific, but it seems one trip to me. I know a lot of people that have felt like their lives were really like in acts or movements. And I can only attribute because I've done a bunch of different stuff, I can only attribute that continuity to the people in my life and then the movie, the film thing, always being there in the background. Yeah, and I think the last thing I'll say too about we're all really lucky to have known what we like to do. We're all very lucky to have the privilege to be able to stick with it, to explore it, to have people in our life who have encouraged us. And I think of someone like my dad, he's always known he wanted to be an artist, but his father died when he was six years old. So his mom had to work two jobs and this was back in the fifties and his grandma helped raise him and his brother and sister. But like, he didn't have anyone encouraging him to do art. He just was 
doing his own thing, but no one was really around to tell him that he was good or not. And I think of that and other people who have never really full up, fully realized their passions because they were just never able to. They were, they were never really given the, the space to. So we have to acknowledge that we're very lucky, very fortunate. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, if my mom listens to this, I better plug my parents having been very supportive and yes. never really telling me to have a backup plan, which like, just because they didn't tell me I had to have a backup plan led me to believe that it, that I could do it. My father didn't because he's just the eternal dreamer, but my mother is a very much a practical woman. And she just was like, cause we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And she was like, do you really want to do what your father's doing, which is a freelance artist on the weekends while he's working at Boeing as a machinist. Do you see how we've struggled? Do you want that to be your life? And I always remember like, that's ah, gotta be different with me, but that but I definitely struggled for a long time and I still struggle from time to time. But I think having that balance of chase after your dreams and also really consider what you're doing and can you actually make this happen? Because you know what, if, you, if you're not independently wealthy, it's hard to be uh, a self-employed artist. <laughs> it's getting hard to be anything these days yeah. if you're not independently wealthy. Right. And that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> Can't go out like that. That was the best part. That's all I have to say about that. Let's do this, these next few rapid fire. So if you were a cocktail, what kind of cocktail would you be? Ooh, uh, gin cocktail because I consume it often and... So I was like looking at my personality and I was thinking like, I'll get some elderflower liqueur because I'm a little fruity. And then um, probably some Campari because I have a little bit of a bitter edge. And then um, this is a rocks cocktail, by the way. And then you put a little soda water because I'm bubbly. And then probably a little <laughs> bit of a garnish of a lemon because, you know, scurvy is bad. Yeah, Sam, can you speak to Stacy's bitter edge? <laughs> No, that part doesn't register. Uh, uh, I was going to say, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, I just, I think I just, I've really come to like bitter liqueurs. Sure. And I think I can have a, I'm a world-class stewer and I can be bitter in my head, but I don't really yeah. let on. I'm, I'm better at like working through my feelings. I think but... there's a, there's a little, there's a sharpness and a tang, mm -hmm. uh, a tang there on the personalities, you know, yeah. in the personality. Tang. I like that. That sounds better than bitter. Tangy. That's why I make all my cocktails with Tang. <laughs> um, Brought to you by <laughs> Tang. The choice of the astronauts. Exactly. Sam? Um, I would be a Wisconsin old fashioned, which for people who don't know is basically like a kitty cocktail for adults. It's like an abomination compared to what a normal old fashioned is, but it's delicious. But I would do it with a nice rye, a Michter's or something like that, because I like the high and the low brow mixed together. I feel like that gives you the best of both worlds in, sure. in all suits. And I know I love that we're doing this at the end of the show, but Stacy mentioned Boeing and Sam just said a Wisconsin style old fashioned. Obviously we're talking to a Milwaukee native and a Seattle native. Yeah. Whose face would you like to see on the dollar bill and why? I like Harriet Tubman. I really would like that promise to be made to actually come to fruition. We need someone that is like historically a black woman, an abolitionist. She's a pioneer and we need to get Andrew Jackson the hell off that bill because he is uh, a monster. Yeah, the 20 needs to be rehabbed before this, the $1, but I would pick a, a buffalo or a bison or, or a tree, like a sequoia. No people, no people. Just, just nature. <laughs> Why is that? <sighs> I'm tired of all these people. <laughs> that was perfect, that was perfect, say no more. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, you know, true answer, 
Yeah, that's like my my Daniel Plainview moment. I'm tired of all these people. The United States of America and the land in which it sits on is a lot of things. It's probably too many things to be encapsulated by one face on the $1 bill. And so I was trying to think of someone that would get to the, the heart of the matter. And so I just ended up thinking about like the land and the nature, which I've been thinking about a lot recently. And, and that's how I ended up saying, you know, I was like, oh, Buffalo. Plus it looked cool and nobody could be mad at it. Yeah, no one could be like that. <laughs> Buffalo was problematic actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it wouldn't be the worst reminder to have uh, a native animal to this continent that we almost like systematically destroyed right. our insatiable pursuit of land and resource and, and how Ted Turner saved them from the- uh... No, he wants Ted Turner to be on the number of the, <laughs> the <do> dollar not. <laughs> bill. <laughs> I want Tina Turner to be on the dollar. Oh, I would love that. The $2 bill. Oh my gosh. What is your battle armor? Hmm. Just like a worn leather jacket, which I feel like is a pat answer because leather jackets are cool. Well, what do you feel most powerful in? What do you have to, what do you wear as, what's your, maybe it's not a battle armor. Maybe it's a Linus's blanket. Hmm. You answer Sam while Stacy thinks about it. Yeah, I'm, I always, I am almost always wearing or have with me a double pocket, a double button pocket army shirt or like a, the French, like a French chore coat in various colors. I am wholly addicted to the pockets primarily. I like layers. As a man from a cold place, I've always been one to embrace the jacket or the coat in general. Now I'm living in LA and I'm still keeping, unless it gets into like, the, the 90s, I'm still probably incorporating one of those two light jacket slash overshirt type things. Yeah, we both are big jacket people, uh, which is hard living in Los Angeles because you don't really get to wear a lot of like jackets that are like heavier than just an overshirt. I have something that it's not quite a clothing because it's with me always, but and it's probably going to make me sound like a vapid airhead, but yeah, I really like my hair. My hair is like my recognizable characteristic. And I feel like when it looks good, I feel great. <laughs> it's powerful. That's not vapid. I, hair, folks. Thank you. It's very powerful. It's, uh, that's important. It's really important. And it's I, it's an identifiable thing. Mm -hmm. It's always looked, I've like, never really dyed it. I don't cut it that, I've never really shaved half of it or anything. It always looks the same. But yeah, it's, it's a recognizable character trait of mine. Fascinating. Yeah. So much for rapid fire. Background noise. What is your favorite background noise? When I'm working, I listen to podcasts a lot. I just like people talking. Plug them. What are your favorites? Oh God, for news, The Daily is great. Slate Political Gab Fest is fantastic. Throughline, love Throughline. They're fantastic. They're just so good. I also, I, I listen to, what else do I listen to? Oh, Reply All is great. Love them. Uh, I was listening to one, a paranormal podcast called Mysterious Universe, but the hosts have like totally, their brain is turned to mush and they, because they're into conspiracy <clears throat> theories, they've gone fully right wing and I'm canceling my membership. And I've listened to them for eight years. So it's really sad to say goodbye to some friends who have gone to the dark side. So I, I mean, I listen to plenty of podcasts, but when I'm, it's not really background noise. When I'm working, it's, it's like low, it's lyric free classical, oftentimes very strange, but very quiet. I like that Pendrecki guy, I like Niels from low level, swirling, Philip Glassy type 
music like that. And then we like to play music. We obviously play music like when, you know, we're cooking dinner yeah. and- Yeah, like video poker music. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Because I just miss the casinos. But I think the eternal, like the, what's it called? What's like the challenge of having endless choices. The, the every choice. night opening up that Spotify and being like, okay, what do we listen to now? Even though everything is at your fingertips yeah. is like a nightly ritual for us. There's been a lot of Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young mm -hmm. in the mix. We have a very good, dark, sort of tiki mm -hmm. mix that reminds us of our go-to neighborhood bar here in Los Angeles that we can't go to. We missed this um, bar. We were like, <clears throat> embarrassingly, we were like regulars, like cheers. We like knew all the bartenders and like, we would show up at like 5 p.m. and have a couple happy hour cocktails and uh, got but, to know all the bartenders. And one of them, a lot of them were musicians and they played the best Spotify mix, maybe we'll plug it. It's called Dark and Tiki. And it's all great music from like the 50s and 60s. Got like a darker vibe to it. It's excellent. Yeah, well, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. It also like, um, like thunderstorms, like off the coast mm -hmm. and being in a, you know, a burning desert wasteland of Los Angeles. It Love it. Nice to hear some like rain sounds. Yeah, big rain fans. I went through my Spotify and I organized everything alphabetically and categorized it. I wish that they wow. would do folders because like I have 20 or 30 dinner mixes. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that the multitude of decisions that you can have just in Spotify mm -hmm. can spin a guy out. <laughs> like, yeah. like, which version it's of- like, It's paralyzing. Just standing there looking at your phone going, I have no idea what to play. I have gone to my meager and unimpressive and very locked in the early aughts record collection and been like, what should I listen to on the internet by looking at the records? Mm. Oh, sure. Which sure. Is so we, that's the other, that's the other thing that I've done lately is I pared down my record collection and I'm down to like 30. That's lean. I don't have a lot of records. I'm not a big record collector. I totally get the desire to be one, but I have never really had it in me. Uh, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to know yeah. what to do. I, I decided that I was only going to keep things that like either played well side to side. So compilations yeah. worked really well. Some albums that were created to be albums work really well. But okay, let's move on to what song or movie motivates you? When it comes to movies, I'm like really motivated. And I think I probably spoke to this a little bit already, but I'm like really motivated by somebody like hitting the mark. So it's like, whether the movie is sleepy and a downer, or it's like action packed and it's really exciting, or it's super emotional and like life affirming. It's if it hits the mark, I leave the movie theater, RIP, pretty fired up. And so I'm just like looking to bask in the, like marinate in all like the decisions and the acting and the, all the performances and from like people behind the camera and in front of the camera to come together and make this thing. And then I get like extremely excited to like work on my own stuff. And if it's like a song, Numbers on the Board by Pusha T is one of my all time like fired up jams. And a lot of like old hardcore punk music that I like don't listen to except for when I'm like driving fast or running fast. But those are not worth mentioning specifically. Yeah. And I guess what motivates me, I was thinking Hayao Miyazaki, like any of his films always leave me so excited to keep world building and to keep painting, which to me are like the two things that really speak to me about his work is that they're like beautifully crafted. Like the fact that so many of the backgrounds are hand painted and you can just see 
the craftsmanship, oh my God, it just really like gives like shivers through my spine. And the fact that the stories are so beautiful and they're so rich and multi-layered and there's usually some sort of like metaphorical overarching theme that I appreciate. A lot of it has to be with like, it has to do with nature, nature or relationships. And that always leaves me really excited to create my own work. Just, I'm always just trying to give him some sort of a homage. When yeah. did you first encounter Miyazaki? I was young. I was in first grade. My teacher, Mr. Matzner, who is so great. He's so supportive of my work still. He, God, when you're a kid and then you like look at your teachers and they're like ancient, I'm sure he was probably like 28 or something, but he had just gotten married to his wife who was from Japan. And when he was like a total loved anything having to do with Japan. So he would go there somewhat frequently. And so he brought back this VHS that had just been dubbed in English called My Neighbor Totoro. And he played it for us first and second graders. And I remember my little mind was just blown. I was obsessed with this movie. And I already was a big fan of Sailor Moon. So any sort of like anime type thing for kids in the late 80s and early 90s was huge for me. So once I started watching his other films, like I remember seeing Princess Mononoke in the theater with Maddie, my, oh, Julius just meowed at us. That kind of movie and then Spirited Away, I just, they're just endlessly inspiring for me. Because I love, I wanted to be an animator for most of my young life. So looking at that to me was like the pinnacle of animation. And that's, to this day, it still, it still holds like such a really important place for me. Sam, were you an anime fan growing up? No, I was a big drawer. Uh, big Ren and Stimpy fan. Big Ren and Stimpy fan. Oh yeah, I like really liked all like the old like the old Peanuts specials. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, like really warm feelings about all that. But I don't know. My parents were relatively strict about rated R movies, but anything below that, I was mainlining like pretty early on. Like Temple of Doom came out in '86 or maybe '84. Either way, it puts me like very young. And I was not allowed to go see that movie in the theater, but I had already been become so obsessed with Raiders, which is not exactly a kid's movie, to demand that the second my dad got home from Temple of Doom, he had to walk around the block with me and explain the movie beat for beat. So at a very young age, I was like already like mainlining child appropriate adult movies. And well, like- Temple, of, Temple of Doom has a very famous scene that a child... Oh, our age. I'm a year younger than you. And I remember a babysitter playing it and saying, I'm going to put this blanket over your head for this one scene. And they take the man's heart out of his chest mm-hmm. by hand. <laughs> I witnessed that through a macrame blanket. <laughs> oh, just you the just first time I saw it. And I remember thinking, well, there is a reason that I have this blanket over my head. I shouldn't be seeing this. Huh. It's it very was, responsible. Of you. It was wild. Back, but back to anime, Sam, you weren't into Voltron or anything like that? I think I had a Voltron toy. Oh, quick PSA. As much as I love uh, a lot of the early Spielberg and I love the Indiana Jones franchise, the first three, Temple of Doom's got some problems, which I have- Absolutely. We should make sure that we notice pretty that. Incredible, pretty incredible. That passed. And it passed the, the, the smell test. And the fact that- are pretty low. I mean, it's, it speaks to how low- the standards of like cultural representations were in the recent history. And that's why I find it strange that people are like 
upset when we say we have so much work to do. It's like, we do. Look how outrageously off the mark this is. Yeah, yeah. Not that, yeah, whatever. I had Voltron toys. I saw the cartoon. I was most upset. He-Man was my number one. He-Man and Scooby-Doo were probably my number ones, aside from all Disney fare. But I, anime and a lot of Hanna-Barbera always, I don't know. I never got that into it for some reason. Yeah. I remember seeing Totoro in middle school at a friend's house and then Kiki's Delivery Service. Love that one. I feel like your girls, would they like that? I think so. So I have a subscription to something that allows us to see all those. I don't know why we haven't yet. Um, The mouse plus. HBO Max, I think, has them. Yeah, I think you're right, Stacey. I think it's on HBO Max, which is why they probably haven't indulged because it's not available on Roku yet. HBO Max. Okay, guys, what is your life's motto? I don't know if I have a guiding motto for like my work. I just have one that my father has always said to me, which has just helped me as a human. And it's this too shall pass, which I think has really helped me through all sorts of dark, hard times, dark times. It's just a really good reminder that tomorrow is a new day and time heals all wounds and nothing is permanent. (laughs) I don't, I don't have one. And I don't feel like I had any that were like passed on to me by the, through the wisdom of my elders. Not to say that my parents and grandparents weren't both, weren't wise and taught me a lot of things. Uh, So I don't really have one. However, my big obsession in terms of like overarching life principles, is I'm like really keep coming back around to this idea of finding joy in things and not just like being happy or being content, but like finding like real personalized enjoyment from some aspect of your life. And it can be big, like partnership and kids and and career, but like that might not even in my opinion be quite as useful or as girding as just like finding little small ways to enjoy yourself throughout a given day so that you don't lose it and go mad. Whether it's, whether it is your work and you do love drawing, like, you know, Stacy does, even though it can sometimes be frustrating, you have a place to go. And I know this isn't a motto. I'm really feeling like it is that and sleep. You just got to find a place. I need to find a place, simple places, simple deeds, simple activities, simple conversations, simple relationships that like make me genuinely like, pleased and happy to like be doing the thing I'm doing, whether it's reading or going for a walk or playing tennis or having a cocktail with my, with my boo or finally answering a phone call from a friend that like I put off for some weird anxiety based reason. I just have found that that's like seeking joy, finding joy, making room for it is uh, super important. Chase your joy, man. Chase your joy. Guys, it was wonderful speaking with you. I'm going to ask you, what did you get out of the last hour that we spent talking? I What I got is that we could probably talk all day, nonstop. I know. If we didn't actually put a cap on this, that you're just so much fun to talk to. It was a pleasure. That was the main, that's my main takeaway. Yeah. And it's interesting to, it's interesting to talk with some kind of purpose. I know this is a casual conversation, and people that know us will be listening to this and people that don't know us will be listening to this. But it's interesting to have a conversation with people that you're very close with, even though you're far away, Max, in St. Louis, and or people that you're intimate with 
like Stacy, who's sitting right beside me. It's interesting to talk with some kind of framework or agenda. I just find myself thinking about things a little bit more directly, more clearly at times. Yeah. It's just different and it's interesting. And I like people and talking. Yeah. And I think we've I've been interviewed before and so is Sam and it's been fun to do it together because Sam talk good. <laughs> Sam do talk good. Sure so, I, yeah. You know yeah, what? Yeah. I will go back to that that conversation we were having towards the beginning about the different perspectives on catharsis and escapism or and I, I don't even know if the word escapism properly addresses how I view your work, Stacy, but it's fantastical and sort of no, derived. I, I, I appreciate you know that. And, and like the notion of exploring the self through experiencing pain. As the Greeks taught us, tragedy does educate, but so too does fantasy. So yeah. too does belief and mm -hmm. notions that are outside of visible thought. Yeah. I, I find that really inspiring. The other thing that I'm really inspired by is I am going to take you guys up on your notion of like, find time to read. Mm -hmm. Read and something like that's like fun for you. Stories. Yeah, you guys are amazing. I miss you so much. This makes me just miss the old days of just hanging out and like having a drink and catching up. Yeah. You know, this is really fun. This was a lot of fun. All right, guys. All right. Love, love you, Max. Love, uh, you. love to Marla and Stella and Ruby. It's great to talk Thank to you. you. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sam and Stacy. You can find Sam on Instagram at Sam underscore Macon. That's S-A-M underscore M-A-C-O-N. And on Twitter at Cezars. That's at S-A-Y-C-Z-A-R-S. Be sure to check out Stacy's artwork at StacyRosich.com. That's S-T-A-C-E-Y-R-O-Z-I-C-H.com. And on Instagram at Stacy Rosich. That's at S-T-A-C-E-Y-R-O-Z-I-C-H. Tune in next week where I'll be reflecting on the guests I've had on the program so far, and I'll be sharing a few words of thanks in celebration of Thanksgiving Day. Thanks so much for listening. This is the No First Podcast. The No First Podcast is a production of All Plat Out, our theme song is That's Right by Pop Villains. Thanks to Marla, Stella, and Ruby. Stay safe, stay healthy, and know first who you are. It could be, they could be bad and they could be good. They're just shenanigans. I mean, I do like Shibboleth. There's a great backstory to it. It's like that great scene in Glorious Bastards where Fastbender does three the wrong way. Yep. And that's With like the when they know. Because the Germans do three thumb, one right? way and the Brits do three another way. It's, I just, that kind of stuff is, Fascinating. Code words.